0: Opera acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present, and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of Opera and the National Boards. I'm Susan Bigger. Today, we're talking about an industry that's rapidly changing and has had some explosive media coverage in recent times, especially through new and increased uses of social media. Yes, it's cosmetic surgery we're discussing. We've all been concerned by stories of poor patient experiences and outcomes, as well as some alleged unethical and unsafe practices by health practitioners. It seems there may be opportunities to improve patient safety. So here with me today are three consumer advocates with expertise in this space. Alan Kirkland is CEO of Choice, and he's also on the expert panel for an independent review of cosmetic surgery, which while we're recording in March 2022, is currently open for submissions. We also have Madison Johnston and Michael Fraser, who are consumer advocates and researchers. But first, in light of the importance of patient stories, we're starting with one today. I'm joined by Kate, which is not her real name. Welcome, Kate. Could you begin by telling us about your experience with cosmetic surgery?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I'm not new to cosmetic plastic surgery, at all by any means. I'm uh, 40 years old and I'm a mother of three children. I first engaged in cosmetic plastic surgery um, back when I was, I think, 23 or 24 years old. I was a very young mum. I felt very self-conscious being that age, being a woman. Unfortunately, women and men both, we have these, I don't know, body image problems and I guess social media sensationalize things to be better than what they are and we have unrealistic expectations on how we need to look in society so I um, engaged in in going and getting um, consultations with cosmetic and plastic surgeons I went and saw a cosmetic surgeon and I wanted somebody that had done this repetitively it's their day-to-day job they're doing it over and over and over and over multiple times a day and he was absolutely amazing he went through everything with me like the the good the bad everything so you so you went ahead you had the procedure and and that was successful procedure done it was an uncomfortable procedure because it was twilight i didn't realize that i would wake up during the procedure um but the outcome was absolutely beyond what i expected i was ecstatic so it sounds like
0: in the end that was a a good experience but i get the feeling that you might have um then gone on to have a a a, a poor experience
1: yeah so this is the hard part so it gets raw. Five years ago, I uh, wanted to get my breasts repaired again after having two more children on top of my first child. So I thought it would be a simple procedure because I had engaged in um, website forums with plastic surgeons from around the world. And so I Ended up engaging with a board-certified Australian plastic surgeon and I had surgery here in Australia. It was a traumatic experience, which has changed my life. I've got PTSD from it. It's, it almost ruined my marriage. My children have secondary PTSD from watching my behaviour because it was very erratic. Because I didn't know that the unsuccessful outcome of the surgery, because I did have a breast lift, which I was told I needed to have by this particular plastic surgeon um, and implants. And then later, did I find out that a lift wasn't necessary? It's just something that they took on themselves. And I trusted them because our board certified. Um, they didn't have anything on the APRA website saying that they'd done anything wrong. When I was able to kind of come around a bit and realise that there was something wrong with me, um, I was so humiliated by the way that I looked. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to see anybody and everyone expects to see you and see these results. So I was always making excuses for the surgeon because they were the surgeon was also saying to me, wait 12 months, but I knew from... The day that I woke up from that operation that something wasn't right, and I told the surgeon and it just fell on deaf ears. And I kept being told, wait 12 months, wait 12 months. So I I trusted the process as much as my intuition knew that no, there's something really wrong. Because I wanted to be fixed. I just so badly and desperately wanted to be fixed. I didn't want to look like that and I had no funds. And I think that's another thing we all go into surgery thinking we're going to come out with a successful outcome but we don't think about revision we don't think about needing funds in case we need to go in for a secondary surgeon because it fails or or something happens can you tell us what what would you say to people who are considering
0: a cosmetic procedure themselves what do you think is really critical for people who before they do that
1: So I really think it's important that you do your research. You don't follow social media. You don't follow these influencers that are getting paid or getting discounted surgery to to boost the profiles of these surgeons. You need to be doing it for yourself, not for any other reasons, because you will go in there and your expectations will be like that person, that influencer you may be comparing yourself to or want to be like, aspire to be like, because it is a serious I think the biggest problem we have as consumers and or patients is we're intimidated. We shouldn't be intimidated. We're employing these people to do a job.
0: Intimidated because they know more than you do as a, as a patient or a consumer, you mean?
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, they know more. You're in a vulnerable situation as it is you have to bear yourself in the raw when you don't even want to look at yourself you know but for instance my breasts I didn't want to look at them myself because I was ashamed of them so you're so nervous or in my case I was so nervous to even have to take off my top to begin with so there's so many emotions rolling up to that leading up to that appointment while you're in that appointment that you actually get so overwhelmed that you need to take in a support person with you because if you forget something, they can be your voice. They kind of know the questions. Even if you've got the written down, they may know some other questions that you want to, or they may have questions themselves that you haven't thought about that they can ask as well. What kind of questions do you think people should, just on that same line, what kind of questions should people ask the practitioner? Do you have any suggestions about that? You need to know if there's going to be a cost associated with revision. You want to know the surgeon's revision rates. You want f- photos in their office right there when you're sitting there, not later on for them to send you because you don't know if it's their their work or not. But you want photos of cases that are similar to how you present as you sit in that office, and so the before and the afters. And you don't want them, um, you know, one week post operative because there's still a lot of swelling you want to see that patient that had that you know that looks similar to you you know months down the track and if they don't have those photos to provide you to me that's a red flag because you should be going back for post-operative checkup so if they can't provide you with that i think it's a red flag to run
0: what what would you want for the future of this industry for patients and practitioners
1: transparency and open communication between both both patient and, and doctor understanding each other what and expectations so the doctor advising them the realistically what they're going to be able to achieve and the patient being happy with that or not so then they're able to walk away and, and go and find another surgeon and get a second opinion if they're not happy if that surgeon says that they can't perform that surgery. So I think money grabbing is huge in the industry and some surgeons are saying that they can do an operation and they just can't do it it's it's beyond their capacity i didn't realize that the seven years experience extra that these plastic surgeons do is because there's the entirety of the human body that they need to learn it's not just aesthetic so i think you know you also need to branch out and find an aesthetic plastic surgeon not just a plastic surgeon because there's a lot of plastic surgeons that will work five days a week doing emergency surgery, which could be an amputation or a workplace accident of a limb that they need to to work with plastics to join that back on. And I think aesthetics is a totally different ball game because we need symmetry. Like it all comes down to symmetry and making sure things are aesthetically pleasing to the eye and and, and functional as well. So. I guess that's another thing people need to take on board. Kate, thank you for your honesty and insights based on your personal experience.
0: It's It's been really helpful.
1: Thank you for having me. I actually, you know, feel really good being able to share my experience as dark as it, it has been. Um, I hope that my negative experiences is able to make, other people not have to go through the ordeal that I did by giving them kind of a little bit of feedback on what may help them when they, you know, go into something like a plastic surgery or cosmetic procedures. And now let's go
0: to our panel of consumer advocates. Alan, could you introduce yourself and how you see this discussion as relevant to the work of choice?
2: So I'm CEO of CHOICE um, I've been in that role since 2012. Uh, CHOICE is the Australian Consumers Association. We've been around since 1960 and we work across a whole swathe of issues that are relevant to consumers. Um, I guess trying to look for instances of harm where we can sort of point to a problem that needs to be fixed by regulators or by industry, but also trying to give advice to consumers about how to protect their interests as they're moving through the world. And I guess um, I mean, we do work in a, in a range of areas of health, but health is such a massive industry that we can't work in every area. So we tend to zero in in areas of practice or treatments where we see signs of risk to consumers. So we're, we're seeing case studies or evidence or we're seeing business practices emerge that, that signal that maybe there's something here that signals that people could be at risk of harm and, and and maybe either we need to be giving better advice to people or more often, we actually need to be looking for a better regulatory response to make sure that people can move through the, through the world without being exposed to risk of harm. One of the reasons I'm involved in this discussion, I guess, is um, because I'm on the expert panel for a. Review of cosmetic surgery regulation that's recently been commissioned. We're looking at how AHPRA goes about reg- um, administering that law alongside some state and territory regulators, specifically in relation to cosmetic surgery, and whether we can recommend any improvements to the way in which that law is currently administered and how, for example, complaints and notifications are handled.
0: Mm, thank you. And Michael and Madison, I know you work together. Um, Maybe Madison, I'll start with you. Can you uh, give us a sense of what angle you bring to this conversation around uh, cosmetic procedures?
3: Sure. So we are consumer and worker advocates and we have been doing this for six or seven years now. We're also similar to choice in that we are industry agnostic. So we don't sort of hone in on one particular industry and then stay there forever. Um, but we have been very um, prominent in the franchising space. And with that space, our goal was to create regulatory change. And that is to benefit consumers, franchisees, workers to try and create le- legislative change that will actually really genuinely create change um, beyond the media, you know, beyond what, what is exposed in the media, beyond getting clicks on stories, things like that. We actually genuinely want consumers to be better off. So when we navigated ourselves into the cosmetic surgery space, um, we found a lot of red flags, um, just looking online through social media and websites. And we felt that there was a huge risk to the public here. And we wanted to sort of do what we did with franchising and try to create change in this space as well.
0: And just, just to clarify, how are you defining what's considered cosmetic surgery or procedure?
3: Yeah, so when we started this, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing because we are not medically trained in, in any aspect at all. So we had a huge learning curve ourselves to try to work out what actually is a cosmetic procedure. Um, and, and the way that we define it is if it's something that it, that's main intention is to improve your aesthetics or the way that you look, um, any kind of surgery that would fit into that. So if there's no real medical component to it um, to cure disease or you know, some sort of plastic surgery element to it. Um, if it's purely cosmetic, that's sort of how we define the scope.
4: Michael? There's a very short list of common procedures, you know, your Brazilian butt lift, uh, the the lipo on, on for the fat under your chin, uh, blepharoplasty, which is the loose skin and fat around your eyes, that kind of thing. High def lipo. Yeah, getting the abs done. Um, you know, um, lipoedema treatment, which is the lumpy um, fat that often goes around people's legs and is painful.
3: That, and- you know, that can have a medical need though. But, yeah, so we just try to look at it purely from a cosmetic point of view, yeah. And it's very easy to get a sense of that when you start following these accounts. Um, and, and they are really sort of um, pushing the aesthetic part of it. So if you're not really happy with the fat under your chin, if you're not really happy with the fat around your arms, you know, the fat on your tummy, these kinds of things that you might not have even thought was a problem before, or you might have clicked through magazines, but it never really occurred to you that you needed to change that about yourself. When these algorithms start to feed this to you directly all day, every day, you start to have this idea that, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should, I look kind of look like her or him, you know, maybe I should also start saving up and have that fixed because I don't look right. Should I have confidence issues? And I think that you know, going back to the red flag thing, I think that's another huge red flag is when these clinics and practitioners are saying that they can essentially cure your confidence issues. It's they're not supposed to say that, um, or like it's magic or art. You know, you're a human being. You have flaws. We need to accept that. At the same time, people shouldn't be judged for having cosmetic surgery. That's not what we're about. But you know, it's it's just really important that when you look at these posts that you're looking at it, are they trying to sell me something when I actually don't feel insecure about myself, you know? So that's sort of how we define it is, uh, you know, these doctors, these practitioners, are they really trying to hone in on your insecurities to try to get you to buy something from them?
0: Can you tell us how long, for example, you've been tracking online activity around cosmetic surgery?
4: Well, Madison and I have been looking at this now for about a year and a half. And quite extensively and a big thing that we try to hone in on is that you know systems and processes like what could be changed how does someone know that a regulator even exists what are the systems available to them to be able to make a complaint and how does a regulator respond so we, we the goal is actually to create positive change that's the ultimate goal but it can often be seen as you know why why the regulator might think why are we picking on them but we're actually trying to help make things better and that ultimately will keep people safe
0: those are questions that we ask ourselves a lot as well how do people find us when you want you want often want to be found alan would you be able to talk about how you've seen the area of cosmetic procedures or cosmetic surgery change over the past few years
2: It's obvious to everybody that there's just been massive industry growth, and particularly if we look beyond just cosmetic surgery, to look at the broader field of cosmetic procedures, including injectables, for example, um, I mean, the fact that you see um, services offering those sorts of procedures in in high streets in in, in shopping malls I mean that's um, a massive change in a short period of time and just in I guess my sort of personal social circle the amount of people I know that are regularly using um, cosmetic surgeries has uh, cosmetic procedures sorry has has exploded as well um, and I think just within the last last two years I've really perceived that shift but then I guess with the choice hat on the other thing we've seen that it is a, a red flag when you see the um, the financing vultures circling around an in industry. So one of the things that's really stood out for us is that um, there are a range of businesses um, that offer debt, credit and debt, um, you know, traditional um personal loans, often with high interest rates for cosmetic procedures, but now also buy now pay later later providers that are lending people up to $30,000 with very poor quality credit checks. Um, I I just mentioned that because for us as a consumer organization working across a number of industries, whenever we see the finance vultures hovering around offering to take away one problem in the consumer journey, we can help you find the money instantly. That is a real orange or more often red flag for us. It often says there's something else going on Want to look at a bit more closely
3: I'll add to that uh, on the financial side of it one of the big um, red flags that we saw just on that was doctors or practitioners encouraging patients to take out their superannuation especially during COVID-19 when that was a bit easier to access um, that was very problematic for us because this is supposed to set people up for their retirement and now they're withdrawing $20,000 $30,000 to have a cosmetic procedure so yeah that you know fully agree with that sentiment.
4: And that involved coaching as well, coaching people how to, you know, structure the process or how to create this, um, you know, by going to your GP, establishing a, you know, some sort of mental condition or something to actually access your super. So it was quite sophisticated to get at it, whereas the patient prior to that wouldn't have even thought they could afford it.
0: And, And Michael, could you give us some examples of what a red flag might be?
4: For, for us it was social media and because we've been watching so long now what we're starting to see is a correlation between people um you know some medical practitioners who use social media to advertise procedures and unhappy patients so the ones that are more aggressive on social media I'm not and that obviously doesn't go for everyone but there's patterns where people who use it more and tend to you know um breach the advertising guidelines or potentially breach them are also the people that we're getting phone calls about where patients have had you know, yeah, a very bad experience or it didn't go quite how the shiny social media experience was portrayed.
2: Um, some of the things that we would see as red flags typically in other industries would be where you get rapid industry growth, because often what that means is you've got new people coming into an industry who may not have the same qualifications as the people who practice there traditionally. It often also means it's hard for regulation to keep up. So sometimes the law doesn't keep up with the sorts of new practices that are emerging as an industry uh, grows rapidly. So rapid industry growth is one of them. Um, in the area of health, in particular, um, where a procedure sort of has an emotional hook, it's also a sign of risk. So when people are not just looking for resolution of a physical problem, but they're actually trying to buy hope of feeling more happy, um, uh, and we see that across a range of, of health treatments, that is also a risk factor, because often that then creates an opportunity to, to sell something where the perhaps the medical evidence isn't always very strong. And then finally, um, where there's a big imbalance, a big imbalance in knowledge and power between the person, the consumer, the person who's buying the good or service or seeking the treatment and the provider, the person providing it, because that means you're, you're highly dependent on their advice um, as a consumer. And um, if there's any flaws in that advice, if they're not adequately um, describing the risks or if they're exaggerating the benefits, then you're entirely at their mercy.
0: That's absolutely right. And information that asymmetry is very strong in health, isn't it? Where we see a, an enormous difference between what the average patient knows and what their uh, particularly a surgeon, for instance, might know.
2: It's a huge challenge in health services and in health regulation. And um, I mean, ideally, we actually want there to be a strong relationship of trust between a consumer and their practitioner. Um, That's at the the very centre of health services, but that that trust needs to be delivered. Um, um, We need to meet that expectation of trust and and where we see evidence that perhaps um, uh, not all practitioners in an area are actually um, behaving to the ethical standard that the community would expect, then that does create enormous risk because of that expectation of trust.
4: Further to that about that trust relationship, one of the things that we've observed which we found quite interesting is that there's a large group of people that actually are quite happy with their procedure. But when you start talking to other more experienced um, surgeons out there, you, you'll actually hear that the results that these patients have are actually very, you know, poor results. But because the patient doesn't know any better, and it might be, you know, someone who had a lot of excess skin that was hanging down way over their belt line and now it's gone and they've got this big hideous scar, but in their mind, they had six liters of fat removed, they've got all the loose skin gone, they're happy, which means that we've actually got this whole, you know, uh, long list of surgeons out there that are doing substandard work, but no one's complaining because they don't know that their result is actually a poor result. Yeah,
0: because they've only ever had one. (laughs) So they have an N of one, which is very hard to compare, yeah. We were talking about elective surgeries and Madison, I think you specifically talked about that that was one of the ways you've defined this. Do you think when uh, a, a surgery or a procedure is elective that it in, in some ways is um, harder for consumers to see that there might be real risks involved in it?
3: We actually don't class cosmetic surgery as elective because elective is often needed surgery as well. It could, It's just not emergency surgery. Um, so we, we don't really define it as elective, even if that is what it's legally known as. It's more just a consumer-driven cosmetic surgery. Um, so in terms of risks, yeah, it's very hard to know the risks. And especially if you have found out about certain practitioners or even the surgery itself on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, there is, they don't often direct you on where to go to learn more about the surgery from a trusted source. Um, and you're very lucky if the practitioner even says at all that there are risks associated with surgery, because it often looks like um, we call it like FIFO surgery, fly in, fly out. Like you go in, you have it, you fly back, you're all good. They make it seem like you're just going to go get your hair done, right? It, the risks are heavily, heavily reduced. Sometimes to just a single sentence, all surgery has risks, you know, or maybe a bit of bruising, maybe a bit of bleeding. You know, it doesn't really go into it that, hey, you can die from this. It's rare, but you can die. You know, it. we don't see that online advertising at all.
0: Alan, from your perspective, have you thought at all about what are some of the kind of steps that consumers can take to make themselves safer so in terms of the kind of questions they can ask or what they can do what they can do to take a bit of that take a bit of control around this important decision that they're making
2: certainly I mean I think the first thing to say is that you can ask absolutely anything um, and I know that's easy to say harder to act upon but I think sometimes um, people are embarrassed to ask, um, Um, very simple questions, but the most simple questions are sometimes the most important, such as what could go wrong? Um, um, What's the worst thing that could happen? Um, What are some of the common problems for other patients? They're all really useful, simple questions and to have them in mind before you go into a conversation, um, because that's how you define some of the boundaries of, of, I guess, the risk. Um, You're probably gonna go in already with a sense of some of the good things that would happen. What you need to understand is the bad things that could happen. But I think um, beyond those questions, the financial impacts are important so I really understanding the costs and asking about all of the costs. Um, practitioners are, are obliged to disclose those but I we do see problems with, with people not understanding the full package of costs um, that they're going to incur and then finally um, I mean a really simple thing that probably doesn't occur to a lot of people is to um, to look up the practitioner on the APRA register, practitioner's register. Um, I mean, that's a really simple thing you can do. And really what you're looking for is things like um, whether there are any re- conditions or restrictions on, on how they can practice. Are there in particular any um, conditions on them doing cosmetic surgery? Because that's a, a bit of an orange flag that perhaps
4: has been a concern in the past and that's why those conditions have been uh, imposed. A big thing that we found with this research is that it's actually pretty hard to get any information at all that is reliable. So starting, uh, and and I know, Alan, you've mentioned that the register with the regulator is a good start. But what we actually found is, so Madison and I actually developed this software to monitor the courts and various other things over the years. So we have ability to search deeper. But what we found is when you would look at a doctor on the ARPA register and see, no restrictions, no problems. And then you would look in our software and you see they've got tons of cases going on in court. And then you start reading into it and you and, and you extract the court documents, you see there's similar problems. So what we realized is um, that there's, there's a myriad of issues. One of them is that yeah, ARPA register doesn't actually show you any court activity. Court activity only happens if the, you know, the complaint system fails. So the person may have first raised it with the doctor and then the doctor said, no, no deal. And then the person sues them. But then you've got the whole review system the uh, like Google reviews. Google reviews are often very positive for most doctors. And what happens is that a lot of doctors will sue people for leaving a bad review. So reviews will go up. They'll be true and genuinely a bad experience review. And then it goes through the court process. So again, we've been looking at court cases to see that doctors are suing people for even suggesting they're going to leave a bad review.
3: You should not have to be an investigator or very experienced in research to know whether someone is good or bad. Um, and, and also sometimes it's not that black and white as well. You know, and we know that there are a lot of ch- challenges for the regulator. You have privacy laws um, that have to be, you know, um, adhered to, but at the end of the day, if it's about protecting the public, there needs to be better quality information for the public to access so that they know that they're making a good decision.
2: I think Michael and Madison make a, an important point there. that There are limits. I mean, if you'll only see conditions on the practitioner register if there's been a notification that's raised significant concerns that, that have meant that um, a condition has been, been imposed. Um, that won't tell you if there have been other um Um, patients who've had issues who who, um, maybe haven't made complaints or indeed may have um, taken action through the court system to seek compensation. And another simple thing that people can do is um, do a Google search search, but filter it based on news results. So search for the practitioner's name on Google and then select the link at the top um, for news items. Uh, Again it's not going to be perfect but it might pick up if there's been court action that's been reported in the media, um, which might be another source of, of finding out whether other patients have actually had concerns about the quality of the work that's been done.
0: Even even in taking those steps, it still, still takes a very engaged and savvy and committed consumer to find out the kind of information that they need to know about some of these um, practitioners. Are any of you able to give us some examples of the kind of stories that you hear about people feeling that they have ended up having not at all the experience they hope to have
4: michael yeah we've heard many many stories and um it's kind of every story comes with another story too you should speak to this person and oh have you looked at this doctor and then you go off on an an endless tangent about how many people have had interesting experiences Um, one of the things that we've heard from people getting cosmetic procedures is that they went in for a specific procedure and the doctor decided on the table that they were going to do something different. And the person and has realized later down the track, even though they were, they were a bit groggy at the time, didn't know what was going on or told them that's not what I want and the doctor did it anyway, is that they were being used to train up on by that doctor. And um, so, you know, we knew uh, spoke to one person who went in, you know, it was a mother who had she she'd had children she wanted to have some fat removed from her belly and the doctor decided that she wanted a six-pack and so you know gave her this hideous six-pack and and it's just destroyed her mental health going forward because it's not what she wanted and she didn't realize what was happening and um you know and and what happens too is normally people like these practitioners who do this kind of thing write down in the notes that the patient asked for that and wanted that, and get the nurses to remark that the patient said they were happy on the day and all this kind of thing. So it's very, very hard for that patient to ever even raise it down the track because they whip out the notes. You said you were happy, you asked for this. And there's a lot of that that goes on that is really disturbing.
3: Yeah. If, you know, there's the whole being unhappy with your procedure, but then there's some sort of medical episode that happens after your procedure. And we've heard where doctors who have done these surgeries have actually discouraged patients from seeking emergency help um, as they try to control the situation. And and our advice would be follow your gut on that. If you feel like you are very ill, don't even contact the doctor, go straight to hospital, go straight to the emergency department because it's your life at stake here. Um, And I don't think enough doctors make that clear. And the other thing we would say is um, just from speaking to a lot of patients is they often go in alone. Um, either they want it to be a secret, they don't want anyone to know, um, or they just want to sort of see for themselves whether they do want it. We would advise them to always take a support person. If it's a friend, a partner, your mum, doesn't matter, just take somebody because you need somebody there to witness what's happening. And then on top of that, also take notes take a lot of notes about what you were told and I know it feels weird to do that when your doctor's telling you stuff to to write it down I know it's strange but you need to do it because they have their notes you need to have your notes as well it's very very important
0: and it really leads me to this question about what do you think you know what do you think consumers patients can and should expect from health practitioners in, in this space Alan do you want to start
2: People's expectations are pretty simple. Practitioners will be truthful; that they'll they'll truthfully describe, um, yes, the benefits, but certainly the risks. They'll be truthful about the costs involved. That they'll behave ethically, so um, so that um, if they are, for example, you know, using images of you, then that's with your proper consent, and and um, and that those images are used in an appropriate way. Most health practitioners are in their in their field for good reasons they want to do the right thing obviously what we're concerned about is is where we see evidence of those that aren't living up to those very basic community expectations around truth fairness and ethics.
3: Madison? Patients don't really know what to expect sometimes um, especially if they're younger they've never sort of gone through a medical journey before where they've had to go to hospital so they don't know what is standard behavior of a doctor um, apart from their experiences with their GP. So if you go in there and your doc, your doctor, your surgeon is telling you to take off your clothes, you might think, oh, that must be normal. You know, oh, I'm just going to take some photos. Is that okay? From my personal phone. Oh, he's a doctor. He won't, you know, that must be fine. You know, they, they don't know what what's strange and what's not. Uh, maybe a slight gut feeling, but they think because this is a respected profession, um, you have to be a good, decent person. You know, they, they wouldn't misuse that. And I think that, better educating and informing consumers about what they can expect or what they should expect walking into these consult rooms i think that is really really important if a doctor is more interested in getting photos of you and getting you to sign social media advertising consent forms red flag you know they need to have your best interest at heart from the start not photos of you not advertising
0: and so when something does go wrong or doesn't feel right and people make a complaint or what we call a notification with the regulator what, what do you hear about that experience? Now, we know there's still room for improvement there. So be honest with your feedback. Michael?
4: What I would ask everyone to do, attempt to go to make a complaint to ARPRA. Don't have to complete it, but see how many steps you need to go through to even understand where to go and do it and what form to fill in and what to say. Looks like it'd be easier to do your taxes than make a complaint to opera. And, and And part two of that, I don't know how many times we've had people say to us, patients, um, members of the public and registered health professionals, say, I have complained to the regulator, nothing happened, or I've complained to the regulator and they agreed that the surgeon did the wrong thing or broke the rules or broke the law, but said no harm was done to the public, so we're not going to act. it's it's kind of like um, if I was drink driving and and the policeman said he didn't crash into anyone, he got home safe, we don't need to do anything. But you need to look at the sum of the activity of the practitioner to see, well, you know, they may not have harmed someone because of this one particular thing, but will they potentially harm someone? So I think we need to look at the, you know, is, uh, is the sum of the action going to create potential to harm someone as well? So
0: absolutely. The role of the regulators is to think about future future patients, future safety. Um, certainly that's very relevant. Alan, please.
2: I think thinking about other patients or future patients is also a really important thing for, for anybody who's had a negative experience. While it can sometimes be difficult to make a complaint, to work out where to go, to go through the steps, um, and indeed that's As part of the review of cosmetic surgery, one of the things you'll be looking at is whether there can be any improvements to the complaints process. If you can manage to get yourself through whatever the steps are, it's actually a really powerful thing that you can do to help other consumers because... Often it does sort of take um, a a well-articulated complaint, the right set of circumstances, or indeed a a wave of complaints from a number of consumers for there to be some sort of action. Um, So it's a really important thing you can do, not to just, I guess, try and get some sort of remedy for what you feel has happened to you, but also to try and um, help other consumers to be better protected from risk in the the future.
1: Is there anything
0: that you would like the public to know about cosmetic um, procedures and surgery that you haven't already
3: mentioned? I would say back in the day, there was this process where clinics or well, any company would go through an, an, an external advertising company or even an internal marketing department and they would ensure that all of their uh, material is approved, um, whether it be legally and, and hopefully ethically as well. But now doctors and clinics are literally doing it from their personal phones. So they're going on a walk, you know, walking their dog, and they're like, oh, I'm going to just post this now real quick. There's no thought that's gone into it necessarily. There's no legal opinion attached to it. So you're seeing very raw um, advertising, and that might be good. It might be considered authentic, but there's a lot of things that aren't being considered. Did that patient properly consent to that? Did they know their images would be used in that way? Is their privacy protected? Um, are they aware that this is actually being used to advertise to children? Are they aware that this is actually being used to to drive insecurities in other people? You know, there's all these factors that isn't really being properly thought out when these posts go up. Um, and also the legality of it is not being checked either. So I think that's something that we, we would want consumers to know is that this is just 24-7 advertising potential. And they really need to be aware of it and think about it critically.
2: I think it's really important for people to understand that there there are no particular requirements around calling yourself a cosmetic surgeon in Australia at the moment. Um, You don't have to have special qualifications to do that beyond um, general medical qualifications. I think a lot of people would expect that cosmetic surgery is a specialty like lots of other specialties that have particular qualification requirements but that's not the case at the moment. There is of course a consultation process underway by health ministers to look at whether the title of surgeon should be regulated which would mean there would then be particular um, uh, requirements attached to being able to call yourself a surgeon, but that's not the case now. So that highlights, you might be dealing with somebody who is um, a general medical practitioner, not a specialist who's offering cosmetic surgery. And it's really important that you ask then about all of those questions around what are the potential risks of this procedure, but also what are your qualifications uh, in order to understand um, who it is you're in fact dealing with before you agree to undergo a
0: procedure. So finally, what do we want uh, for the future of this industry? What do you want to see for for both for patients and for practitioners? Michael.
4: I think we need to see more information um, from the regulators and a more centralised approach to managing complaints. So at the moment, <laughs> we made so many calls to work out who you would even complain to about a doctor and, and then things bounce around between de- departments and states. It's very confusing. And I think from the customer's point of view or the complainant's point of view, they don't really need, shouldn't need to know about that. There should be just some central system where people can complain. And then that back of house stuff can happen where everyone is you know, informed in a live environment um, of the appropriate information. But in terms of like the register, one of the big things we've found people say look your doctor up on the register there's doctors that don't even use their name on their website so you go there you can't find them it could be an anthony who calls himself tony um, and uses his middle name instead of his last name so you don't even have a hope in the world of finding them and then if you do find them you then don't know if you've got the right one and we have seen instances of a doctor both having the same name in the same area and you don't know which one so i think what would be important is that, you know, if there were a requirement that any registered health practitioner that was, you know, putting their name out as a professional, not on their personal stuff, but um, had to have their number, their registration number next to their name, wherever they put their name or wherever they promote themselves. So you can easily identify them. Then, you know, my name is Michael. I could call myself Jack. Wouldn't matter. My registration number's there. Um, And the other thing is would be that, I think we need to talk about having some system that not just includes conditions, undertakings, and reprimands, but also um, making it a requirement that if someone has proceed, uh, a patient has commenced some sort of legal proceeding against that practitioner, there's maybe a record of that there, so the patient can go and do further research or be aware of it. Like, and, and obviously that needs to be workshop, but more information where APRA wouldn't need to do anything necessarily. It would be the doctor's requirement that they must inform AHPRA, and it must go on the register. So, you know, because you know, we've seen doctors have 12 court cases, but their AHPRA register's clean. That should ring alarm bells, um, I would think, for someone.
0: So you're talking about really transparency and good information for consumers and, and, and ease of, of navigating a complex system. Those are all really good points. Yeah. Alan?
2: We've talked a lot in this conversation around um, what consumers should do um, to try to be better informed and how we improve the system so there's more information there for consumers. Look, that's, of course, important because people should be able to find the information they need to find. But really, we shouldn't have to depend on that. We shouldn't be pushing all of the work, all of the risk onto consumers to work out whether Um, a practitioner is going to provide a suitable standard of care and whether um, the procedure that they're going to have is is going to be safe and and free of undue risk. What we actually need is a system that means that wherever you go, you're likely to be dealing with a practitioner who provides um, um, reliable um, information about the full gamut of risks as well as the benefits, um, that the standard of care you'll experience will be high Um, and that the the cost will be what what you expect. Um, So we actually need a system that ensures that, that really people shouldn't have to go through and do a lot of research because ultimately you're going to be treated well wherever you go.
0: So I think that's probably a good place for us to wrap up this fascinating conversation. Thank you, Michael, Madison, and Alan, for highlighting some of the real challenges for consumers and for providing some really useful advice. Thank you so much.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank
0: you very much. Now, if you've had cosmetic surgery and you would like to share your experience, the public consultation for the independent review is open until April the 14th. So to have your say, please visit the consultation page on the OPERA website. Thank you for listening to Taking Care. You can check out our back catalog or contact us at communications if you have any questions
1: or feedback. And we'll see you next time.